Thank you for your awkward clap. I appreciate it. All of you. Um, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I could say um, that all of that was planned, but we can basically go home uh, because the what Ben just said is almost the application of our message. Um, and I wrestled with this passage all week um, and was very convicted myself, and I decided um, that it probably actually wasn't best that I shared with you guys my conviction, um, but now I'm feeling very heavily from the Lord that I should. Because uh, my story is Ben's story. Um, my story is pretty severe, I think. Most days I, I go up and down, and it's a weight I carry, and I sit here and I question, man, how, how do I understand the love of God when I haven't talked to my mother in over a year? Um, my mom's not a very kind person. Um, and I've been to counseling with my mom. I have tried everything I possibly could to salvage this relationship. Um, my mom has shown that she wants no part of that. And so I decided a little over a year ago the best thing was that my family would go no contact at recommendation of some counselors. But I still struggle with that every single day. Of how am I displaying the love of Christ to my mom despite who she has been and what she has done in light of all that I have done to God. And yet, he did for me the unthinkable. So thank you, Ben. That hurts. That stinks. I'm encouraged. Um, it causes me to pray more, seek God more, seek what he wants uh, for my mom. He wants my mom to know him, uh, to love him, to her sin um, and to be back in relationship with her family so just as Andrew said your story is going to convict somebody it's going to cause them to seek God it's going to touch them in the recesses of their heart and soul like you could not imagine and that just happened to me um, I was not planning on that tonight so thank you Lord and thank you Ben for being faithful um, to what God asked you to do we're going to be in 1 John 4, if you have a Bible. Uh, if not, I highly encourage you to go grab one. We're going to look at this together. Uh, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. And our question is simple. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. And uh, not to get too far ahead of me, but it's more than a feeling. Yeah? Okay. So two song titles so far. What is love? We're going to feeling. We're going to get there. Uh, but as you're turning 1 John 4, it'll be easier if you're looking for it to start at the back of the Bible and work your way backwards. Um, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. What is love? Um, Andrew introduced the series last week, um, and it was the, do you love Jesus? Right? Look at that hard question. Do you actually love Jesus? And it's going to be helpful for us to define what is love. And John... Uh, is actually known as the Apostle of Love. So he's a great person to go to in John's Gospel, the uh, first, second, and third John's Gospel's Revelation, and see what he has to say about love. Uh, he's, he's really interested in the topic, and so he's a great resource for it. And in these six verses, you're going to get probably some of the most jam-packed definition and depth of what love is, just from six verses. And that's what we're going to dive into tonight. Uh, so let's read... 1 John 4, 7 through 12 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation. Say propitiation. propitiation. Say it again. Mouthful. Um, propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that you spoke to us. You decided to reveal yourself to us, who you are and what you're like by giving us your word. You didn't have to do that, uh, but you knew that there was no life apart from you, and so you wanted to give us life. You wanted to give us yourself. That we might know uh, your love, that we might join in that love, and we might enjoy the life, uh, life eternal with you. So, Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for what you have to tell us about love. Would we uh, be open uh, to receive your love, open to receive your word, and submit to it, looking to it as the highest authority and the highest treasure uh, that we can have? Amen. Amen. So, I want, I want you to dig through those verses real quick. 7 through 12, and just very simply, what, what is love? He, he says a lot in there about love. Oh man, I completely forgot. There was this amazing, you guys ever seen one of those like word frequency bubble graphics where like some words are larger and other ones are smaller? I completely forgot to add this in the slideshow. That is really unfortunate because it's really cool. Nuts. Anyways, um, go through 7 through 12 and just shout it out. What is love? What is love? God. God. What else? Not that we love God, but that He loved us. Okay. For one another. It's for one another. Boom. Love is perfected in us. Knowledge of God. Made manifest among us. What does that mean? Denied. <laughs> it says it. That's important. It says it, so you need to we'll figure out what that means. Exactly. Sacrificial. Sacrificial. Only from God. Only from God. Awesome, begging you that next slide. So, some y'all got a lot of these. Uh, love, first and foremost, in verse 7, it's for one another. It's not towards an object, right? It's not your phone, it's not a TV show. Despite how much I love tacos, right? That's not the love that he's talking about. This is a relational aspect, right? We're talking a relational word here. 
not, a, not an affection, not uh, something that makes you happy. Uh, so love is for one another. Love is from God. Love is an attribute of those born of God. It's an attribute of those who know God. Love is not an attribute of those who do not know God, or who do not know God. Yep. Love is, yep, that's worded correctly. English is good. Um, God is love. Notice how I said everything in here, love is, love is, love is. And why is it important that God is love and love is not God? Say it again. Okay. Yeah, God is love, but love is not God. Well, why would there, why would there be a distinction? Because it, it, it is of him, right? Love is of him in his personhood. But to say love is God, right, then we could go very generic. We could very go New Age theology with it, where it doesn't matter who your God is, but love. Love is to be elevated. And as soon as we say love is God, we devalue what love is. But God is love. God is the one that gives the power, the essence to what love is and how it possibly can be defined. So love is these things, but love is not God. God is love. Love is manifested. It's more than a feeling. It means it's an, it's an action. Love is not conditional. Someone said that. It's not that we loved God, but he loved us. So his loving us was not dependent on our loving him. Love is an action. Love is sacrifice. Love is a command. So what we learn about love all in these six verses. And so we're going to dive a little bit deeper into, into some of these. Uh, and the first one is that love, it originates with God. It's of God. It's, it's from God. Ben, you can hit up the next slide. And that's in verses 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. As we just said, God, love originates with God. He gives love its power, its essence. It is an attribute that he possesses, that he spoke into creation, that he shared unto the world. So it originates first and foremost with him, and therefore who possesses it? If it originates with him, who possesses it? God. God. Us. And us. Why? Say it again. God's love. But it says that those who are born of him, those who know him, right? God is love, so him is the essence. He's the one that has it. He possesses it. Therefore, it's only his children then that also have that love, that, that love in the same manner. Right, we, we can talk about all forms of love, right? I, I think that's a word that's thrown around a lot. Like I said, I love tacos, right? That's not the love that is from God, right? That is enjoyment of things, right? So it's not necessarily a love that we hear thrown around all the time. We're talking about a different love here that the world does not know apart from God. A love that nobody would even fathom or think of. And those that possess the ability to love in that same way, it says, are those that are only 
born of God, those that know him. And then the reverse, you do not love in this way, in this manner, if you do not know God. If you are not in intimate relationship with him, you will not love in this way. If you are not born of him, given new life, as it says you know, in John 3, when he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's what he's talking about. That's the same word, the same aspect going on here. And that word born is not even just a, you must be born. It actually means to be fathered. Right? So I know that sounds weird. It's like, okay, there, there's born, right, that, I, that I've been born. I've come into the world. But what's meaning here is that you have been fathered. So that means, literally, it, it, it means that through, through a male, right, you came, that you were, you, were, you were a choice, right? You were a choice in the choosing of that father to, to have a child. So it's not just the born, like, oh, I've, I've come into a situation, right? This is the act of choosing of God that you have, been, you have been fathered. You have been brought from your sin into the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. That God has rescued you. And because he has rescued you, you're in this intimate knowing of him, this intimate relationship with him. And because he has fathered you, because you're in this intimate relationship with him, because of the work of Jesus, then, then it is that you're able to love in this manner. It is not you love in this manner so that God would rescue you. It's this love only comes from those who have been rescued by the saving work of Jesus. So it originates with them. Do not be confused that this love will not show in someone's life in this way. We're going to learn what in this way means. It's not going to show in the life of those who do not know God. So next up, it is um, love in, in, yeah. Next one. Next one. Yeah. Love is more than a feeling. It's an action. Love is more than a feeling. It's an action, right? So, again, you talk about the common forms of love that we hear. It's, it's infatuation. It's an affection. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but you've probably ever told someone you love someone. I think the first time I did, I was in sixth grade because I was dumb and just, like, loved having girlfriends. There we go. Throwing around that word again, loved, right? It has very little meaning in our culture. And we often associate it with infatuation and feeling and the liking of somebody. When I like you, I love you. This is in no way, in no way, the love that is being talked about here. And most of the love described in the Bible, it is more than a feeling. It is an action. It is a commitment to act, whether you like or don't like the person at that moment. It is a commitment to act and act and act again. Even when they've hurt you. Even when you're happy with that person. And it's God's commitment to us. And here's how that commitment was played out. This is why it says that God is love. Because there's been no greater act of love. There's been no greater manifestation of love. That means to make things clear or obvious to the eye and mind. To be manifest means it's right in front of you. You can see it. You can touch it. It's not the, 
I love you, but you're acting a certain different way towards me. That, that's what I grew up with. I heard the word, I love you, but then I saw a completely different action that spoke otherwise. And so those words never were expressed in action. They were only expressed in word. There's a huge difference. So God didn't tell his people, hey, I love you, and then never do anything about it. But he manifested that love, it says, in verse 9 and 10. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest, became clear, visible, obvious to the eye and to the mind among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You, you, on this earth, other than God, are the only other person that knows the depth of your sin. That knows the real ugly about you. Knows the things that you don't like about yourself that you continue to do and do and do. And there's a fear that if other people saw that, you would be wholly unacceptable to other people if they knew about you what you know about yourself. The darkness that you're capable of, the evil you're capable of, the, the anger, the, the mean thoughts and things said that you say to other people behind their back. God knows, listen, God knows how ugly all that really is. He knows how unlovable you truly are. He knows your sin. What you try to hide from everyone else, he knows that. When you think about the love of God, think about that version of you. That version you don't want anyone else to see. He knows that. He sees that. And guess what? He came and he died. He nailed himself on a cross for that version of you. He didn't say, Isaac, clean yourself up and then I'll put myself on the cross. He said, make yourself lovable and then I will love you. None of this occurred. It was in that state that most unlovable state, that he sent his only son, God himself, came, put on flesh. He was tempted and tried in every single way that we were. He saw the ugliness of sin that we deal with on a daily basis, and he put himself on that cross, and he sat there, and he stayed. He had the option. He had the power to take himself down, and he said, no, you're worth it. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to die for what is unlovable in you. That you might come into my Father's presence. That's what it means for him to be the propitiation for our sins. He was our perfect substitute. He died in the place of our sins. He absolved all of the wrath of God that was deserved because of our sin. Everything. Lovable about you 
deserves wrath. And you didn't have to pay it. God paid it for you. And now he says this, child, you are beautiful. You are spotless. You are perfect. You are blameless in my sight. Those are the words of Colossians 1. It says, you were formerly so unlovable, but now, because of what Christ has done, that he didn't consider his needs, he considered your needs first. That he even submitted to the wrath of God for you. now Jesus is presenting you as beautiful, as perfect, as spotless, as blameless, as someone who is utterly and deeply loved by God. Again, not because of what is lovable about you. You're very unlovable. But it's all because of his commitment to act. We're based just on the feelings of God, right? If it was just his feeling towards us. Rather, his commitment. I'm going to take his commitment over feeling any day. Because that's what he said. Love, and first and foremost, is an action. It is a choice to day in and day out act on behalf of your needs before my own. That's what John Stott says, uh, one of my favorite theologians. Um, you can go to that next slide. If it is that next slide, I think it is. Nope, made it best clear. Yep. Love is self-sacrifice, is how he defines it. The seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. Hill is radical. Absolutely radical. Uh, Jesus says elsewhere, or it says elsewhere in the Bible that it would make sense to die for a good person, a righteous person, someone who has done good things, but no, none of you, none of you would have the mindset to die for an enemy, to die for somebody who has spat on your face, that has lashed you, that has mocked you in every way possible, has put you to shame in front of your friends, your family, your entire town, left you out to die, to suffocate. But why would you die for that person that would do that to you? That doesn't make sense. And that's what he's saying here. There's no greater manifestation, no greater display of love than what Jesus did. You look through any um, religions, mythologies, there, there's, there's never an occasion where the God that is the object of people's worship is the one suffering for those people don't have to. There's no other religion that has a sword. There's no other God that would do this. There's no other God that is sitting there and saying, I'm putting your needs before mine. Saying, praise me, worship me. Right? Our God is saying that. He declares. He demands our praise. He demands our worship. But he knows the depths of our sins. He's been where we have been. He has gone further than we have ever gone. He sought your needs, not his. Love is self-sacrifice. Seeking another's good at 
the cost of your own. I watch Frozen about once a week. I don't know if you know this. Um, most Disney movies, all Disney movies almost, and most other movies you've seen uh, where you really enjoy the story, um, they're all hacks. Because there is no greater story than this one told. There's no greater story than the gospel of a God creating, creation falling, and that God coming to rescue man from the depths of evil and darkness and bringing them back into peace, into light, into heaven, into goodness, into glory, into joy. That is the only story that is ever told in all of these movies. And it's because when you go back to the story of the gospel, there is no greater story told. And Frozen is one of my favorite examples of that. It is one of the best gospel-pointing Disney movies that I can use as an example. And then it goes utterly south right after it presents the gospel in this awesome way. Um, so we're going to watch this clip. Um, it is the manifestation of this love that God is talking about. And then Elsa just takes it and applies it so terribly and devalues this act, devalues the word love. So bring back summer. Bring back summer, okay. Ultimate display of love, what it truly means to not just to feel, but to act, to manifest that love, to commit to loving someone at the point that you would die for them. And then she turns around and takes it and just, oh, it's just all the anger and fear inside me. I just need love. <laughs> Turn it, into, it takes it from this beautiful gospel moment of sacrificial love. And she says, no, what's wrong with the world? We just all need love. Love and acceptance and just good vibes and good feelings and all this other new age garbage that is thrown out there. That is not love. It strips it of all its power, of all its weight, of all its glory. When you just make love the simple acceptance and the feel good vibes for other people, that's not a commitment to seek the good of others before yourself. Because what if you're having to accept somebody who's actually hurting themselves, right? Loving them is not accepting them hurting themselves, living in sin. Loving them would be committing to seek their good, even at the cost maybe of your friendship. Right? By speaking the truth in love. So Disney was so close, so close. They had it. And then they were... Um, lastly, love is our test. Love is our test. And why that's important. Um, the whole book of John, let's get to uh, 1 John, let's get to some context. Um, 1 John was written to dispute some lies that were going around at the church. They were all a little bit disturbed. There was this group, um, they're called the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that uh, Jesus himself was, that, was actually not uh, God in the flesh. Because anything that is divine, anything that is of God, is so worthy that putting on flesh, anything of the world is not worthy in itself. It's basically too dirty for God. 
that God could never come and actually be here and be a man himself. So the Spirit of God came upon Jesus and then came off of him right before his death on the cross. Um, all this weird stuff. And their big thing was nothing you do in the body matters. That your salvation is just a higher knowledge of spiritual things. So what you do on earth does not matter. You can live any which way you want, but it is this secret knowledge, they said. It's the secret knowledge of God that would lead to your wisdom, that the hope in life is that we would escape physical world and go to be spirit beings, whatever that means, right? Uh, not the gospel, not the truth. Jesus was God in the flesh. God coming, being tempted in every which way that we were. Um, and so they were being shaken, uh, the people of this new teaching, this new group coming along saying these things. And it was messing with their assurance. How, how do I know that I'm truly saved? They're saying I have to have the secret knowledge. How do I know I have the secret knowledge? John is putting things right here down on the earth for us. See, the Gnostics couldn't escape their humanity. They couldn't escape the evil that they actually wanted to do. So they're like, you know what? We're going to say being saved isn't about what you do here on earth. It's just going to be up here. Um, and John with the complete reverse of that. He says, how you know you're saved has nothing to do with this secret knowledge that's up here in the sky. But it is very manifest. It's very visible. It's obvious to the eye and to the mind. You can see it. You can touch it. You go back to chapter 1 in here. It says, that we have seen, that we have heard, that we have touched. Right? He's very much trying to drive home this point that your assurance, it, it can be seen. Seen in how you live your life. And so there are three main tests throughout the book that he presents. And one of them is love. Do you love? So love is our test to say whether or not we know God, that we possess this seeking of others' good at our own cost, putting others' needs before our own. Because again, if you're born of God, only those who are born of God possess this love. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Hey, not like if you feel like it. That was a command. You who say you believe, you who say you are proclaiming this manifest act of love that God did on the cross for your salvation, you're the recipient of that you in response should love in the same way. If you truly have grasped how unlovable you were and yet how loved you were by that act, you ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us or dwells in us. Again, going back to that born of God thing and going back to knowing him, right? He dwells in us. He's taken residence in us and his love is perfected in us. If you know the love of God, if you have truly considered what occurred on the cross on your behalf, despite how unlovable you were, as Ben said earlier, how can I look at my great offenses to God 
and look upon another who has done far, far less than me and not forgive them, not love them, not seek their needs above my own as God sought my needs before his own. If you truly understood that, How could you not love in the same manner? And I ask that question of myself today and all this week as I told you. What does it look like for me to love my mom? How do I obey God here? That's what I'm asking you for. How, how do I obey you here? How do I best love her as I was loved? Her offenses towards me are nothing. They are nothing like my continued offenses against you. And ultimately, her offenses are not against me. David says, after he killed a man for impregnating his wife, he says, God, ultimately I sinned against you. Pretty sure he sinned against his friend who he killed and impregnated his wife. But he looks at that sin that he committed and he says, oh no, I have sinned against the creator of the universe. That person that has offended you has, has a lot more to overcome than the small offenses they've done to you. The God of the universe has to forgive them. And look at the lengths the God of the universe went to forgive them of their unlovability and to welcome him in as a child. So, Is this lived out in your life? Do you see this type of love that God made manifest, clear and obvious to us, that, that no one else has done? Die for the unlovable, seeking the needs of someone else before your own. Do you see that love in your life? As you've received it, are you pouring that type of love out? Even when you don't feel like even when you don't like the person. At your schools, how is it that you are loving the person that nobody likes, that people talk poorly of behind their back? How are you seeking their needs above your own to be cool in that moment and join in on the picking fun? to see what's going to happen one day um, as it happened to me is you, you will God will convict you of that sin and you're going to have the awkward moment uh, as an adult maybe or later on in high school um, when you call up or get in contact with those people that you make fun of or that you sinned and you confess it to them and it's super awkward um but once you realize what God has done for you and how you've not loved other people, are you going to take a step to love them? Are you going to recognize that I'm not obeying God here, that I'm following this command, this test that shows me that I am a recipient of the love of God, that I can actually see it in my life? 
the love he gave me, I'm also pouring out. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Look how he loved you. Is that love, that same love, manifest in your own life? That's going to help you answer the question, do I love Jesus?